The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning. We're Chris and Jacqueline Hink, and we've been asked to read today's scripture. It's from James chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace, and that is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Amen. I thank uh, Chris and Jacqueline for reading the scripture to us this morning from James chapter 4. Before I share the message this morning, I'd like to just share uh, three other things. Uh, Number one is I'd like to just uh, thank you who were praying for the leadership of our church. Uh, This past weekend we had a a Zoom retreat, which is uh, an oxymoron, I guess. But uh, anyway, that's the way we did it. And um, we had a really great chance as board staff and deacons to to uh, just get together and really talk about some of the important things. And I just want to commend, uh, we, we as staff have an incredibly great group of people, leadership to work with in this church, and we are very blessed. And uh, it was all about some of the vision that God is leading us towards. So thank you for those of you who prayed. Uh, a second thing I just want to remind us of is, um, yes, this is entering a red zone in Winnipeg, and uh, that can alarm some 
But I want to say, let's, let's take this as a call to watch and pray. Let's take it as an opportunity to come under God's incredible sovereign care of this city and of our families and our neighbors. And let's have an opportunity, though we might ourselves be isolated and lonely, let's have an opportunity to look around, to be watchful, and to pray, and to see if we can be the solution to someone else's loneliness. And so I call us to that kind of watchfulness and prayer in these next few weeks. And then thirdly, I just want to remind us to pray for the election in the United States this, uh, this Tuesday. And uh, I know that, um, I, th- I thought it was very interesting how God, in the scripture that we uh, charted out for the, the whole fall season, that God lined up chapter 4, verse 1 to preach on this morning. What causes fights and quarrels among you? <laughs> well, I think, actually, James wasn't talking about COVID-19, but we could cause a lot of quarreling among us about our response to COVID-19. And James wasn't talking about the U.S. election, though I have heard a lot of conflict, quarreling, and fighting about the U.S. election. In fact, I know Christians in the States on all three sides of the whole thing. Well, you say three. What do you mean three? There's only the Democrats and the Republicans, right? No, there are those that aren't going to vote at all. And I know Christians on all sides of those, and you know what? They're never going to agree. And we're never going to agree in this church on our politics and on our COVID-19 response and all kinds of other things. And actually, when we get into the Word in a minute, we're going to see that that's not what causes quarreling and fighting among us, mainly. And so, let's remind ourselves of that. But, let's also, as God's people on earth, be vigilant. And let's go to prayer right now, just for a moment, to pray for that election. Father in in heaven, we thank you, Lord, as Doug reminded us, this international day of prayer for the persecuted church. And we're so mindful, O God, of the the trouble on earth. Lord, we we see it every day. We read about it. And we know that, um, Lord, you, you grieve over the conflict on earth. And Jesus, we come to you this day, and we want to just lift up to you the... United States of America, south of us, we just want to pray for the election on Tuesday. God, would you have your way? Lord, it's a mystery how people that love your name and really earnestly want to follow you can be so divided. But, oh God, we pray that you might be glorified and and that you would call your church to prayer in in that country and here as well. And Father, we just ask you to help us to understand. Give us a a redeemed mindset, a sanctified mindset over things that the world often divides over. Jesus, help us. And uh, just lead us now, Holy Spirit of God. Lead us into your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the scripture that we're looking at this morning, James, the elder of the church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, addresses a matter that was obviously very pertinent to the people that he's writing, who are those believers, mostly Jewish believers, who were scattered from Jerusalem, and we read about that persecution that happened in Acts chapter 8. And we read about this group that was scattered, and all throughout the book of James, he is calling them to live out what matters to God. 
Now, there's lots of other things that matter to them, but he is calling them to pursue a genuine faith and to evidence that faith and to pursue what matters to God. And this morning, he is saying to them, it matters to God that the things that are warring in your spirit, in your heart, the passions and desires that are causing outward conflict and quarreling, that really matters to God. And so, in the scripture that we're looking at, Sorry, let me just get this. Uh, The scripture starts with saying, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that war or battle within you? An interesting thing about this text is that the word for desires here, or passions in the ESV, is the word hedonon, which we get our word hedonism from. These are hedonistic desires that are warring within the hearts of the people that James is writing. And uh, the, this, this word is never used in the New Testament for any good pleasure. This is always a word that is used for negative things. Hedonism is defined in this way as the pursuit of pleasure, sensual self-indulgence, the theory that pleasure or happiness is the highest good and the aim of all human life. Pursuit of pleasure, absence of pain. Now, Every one of you sitting here or watching online, every one of you, when you came into this world, just like Naomi came in this past Wednesday to Sean and Jennifer, you started out this life by pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. That in itself seems like a pretty logical way to live life. I mean, what any, does anyone al- among us not want pleasure and happiness, and does anyone want pain? Of course not. It is that very rational thinking during the period of the Enlightenment that called, uh, caused a man like Voltaire, this French philosopher, to say about Christianity, uh, criticize Christianity, and say this. He said, the pursuit of pleasure must be the goal of every rational person. It makes no sense not to want to be happy, not to want pleasure, not to want to avoid pain. And so the dilemma of this enlightened, so-called enlightened secular humanism that was around and surfacing even before Voltaire is that um, they seriously don't address the nature of humanity. They don't seriously grapple with this thing which is called inherited sin. This problem of the universal controlling influence of our self-absorbed bent to do what pleases us, to ignore our creator, to be blind to the needs of those that are around us, and basically pursue the, the absence of pain and the pursuit of pleasure. Now let me just take a moment to say that in the coming year, in, in starting in January, we are going to start to unpack the, the Apostle Paul's Magna Carta. And it's the first letter that is in the New Testament with the name Paul as the author. And the reason it's the first in the New Testament is because it's his most important work. I'm talking about the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, Paul is going to unpack more clearly for us what it is, what it is, this thing called sin, and what God's remedy for sin and sinners is, according to the message that Jesus Christ gave his church to preach and share to this world, even here in Canada in the 21st century. 
And so the interesting thing that I find when it comes to talking about the pursuit of pleasure, this hedonism that James is addressing in chapter 4, verse 1, he uses the word twice, he uses it also in verse 3, is that when we see the humanistic response, it really, the, the way of dealing with these, these wild horses that are in your spirit, these warring passions, these desires that you know aren't right, the way is balance. That's what I hear. In fact, just uh, recently, reading a little bit in Psychology Today, an author in the Psychology Today magazine cautioned against hedonism. You don't think that they would do that, but they do. They said that pursuing happiness alone can lead you to be unhappy. That's what the human conclusion was. And he identified, the author identified hedonism on one end of the continuum and stoicism on the other, this idea that you can be free from emotions, stiff upper lip, and so on. So, so the author is stating, well, you, you can't go over there and you can't go over there. So is, is what we want is balance. Balance. Here's what uh, he says. A balanced philosophy of happiness can contribute to a happy life. And I think that whenever I, I find this is the conclusion that people arrive at when they've removed God from the, the picture and when they've removed the idea of sin and, and accountability to God, then we have to move toward balance. And the interesting thing about that is that that, that doesn't work. And many people who are pressed by the internal you know, warring spirit, the passions, the hedonistic desires in their hearts, they, they recognize in the, their own experience often they can't control the stoicism. They can't control those things. And they realize that if they just let those horses out of the barn, they're going to be in trouble. It's going to cause fights and quarrels. And so they somehow just get, get this balance idea. In fact, I was interested to hear Steve Morris, who's leading the Seven Pillars program in our church, uh, pure Desire Ministry that, that belongs to has said that 30% of the people that, uh, that sign up for their programs are unbelievers. Now, what would make an unbeliever sign up for a Christian program that is often being held in a church? Well, I'll tell you what makes them sign up is because they see people dealing with all the wild horses in a real credible way. They see people addressing the real issues of the human heart and finding healing. That's what makes them sign up. And so the question I'm raising this morning, I'm taking this out of James, is, 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 is it just, is balance between stoicism and hedonism the solution that God gives us for controlling the passions and desires that war within us and cause fights and quarrels among us? Is that God's answer? I think we can all say a resounding no. That's not God's answer. And so... Let's take a look at what James has to say about God's answer. I want to unpack the scripture that we're looking at this morning in three sections. Very simply, I want to talk in verses 1 to 4 about the life of the hedonist. Secondly, I want to talk about the life of the Holy Spirit in verse 5, which I see as a pivotal verse. And then finally, I want to talk about the life of the humble that the Holy Spirit produces when Jesus Christ is Lord. Hedonism is mentioned in verse 1 and 3, this word hedonon. It's the idea of unbridled, unbridled desires that just are allowed to have their way. The philosophy of party, party, party 
is nothing new. In fact, back in Isaiah's day, uh, it says in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 13, that at that time there were many that were saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You've heard it. You see, it's, it's a philosophy that was back in Isaiah's day. And in fact, between Isaiah and the time of Christ, there was a guy named Epicurus. And Epicurus is a Greek philosopher who also believed in this idea of, of seeking pleasure. In fact, he taught that the pursuit of modest pleasure, notice the balance again, modest pleasure. Don't, all let, don't let all the horses out of the barn. And maybe be careful who's watching when you let them out of the barn. Balance here again. He said that the pursuit of modest pleasures in order to attain a state of tranquility, freedom from fear, and the absence of bodily pain. That's what Epicurus taught. In fact, very interesting scripture, interesting scripture in Acts chapter 17. Remember when Paul gets to Athens and he's preaching? And there's a, a verse in verse 18, it says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with Paul. That's amazing, I think. Here are the two philosophies that are at two ends of the continuum, the Stoics and the Epicureans, you know, and here they are coming to hear, Jesus, or hear Paul talk about Jesus and the resurrection. It's amazing. Because why? Because I think that they found in the two extremes of their pursuit of life on this earth, they realized it isn't working. It isn't working. And so it's, it's fascinating that Paul shares with them about Jesus Christ. See, they, they'd come to realize that neither denying those passions with a stiff upper lip nor giving in to them was the solution. But here's the point, Christians. You and I can lean one way or the other. In fact, I, I would say you and I don't lean one way or the other. I think you and I are in the danger of trying to find balance. And that's a different approach than what James is going to teach. I think you and I sometimes contend toward this idea of, okay, looks like a safe moment. Let's let the horses out for a while. And so, balance is not what James is teaching. Let's look at this. The life of a hedonist. At the end of chapter 3, we talked about it two weeks ago when Doug shared about two kinds of wisdom. The wisdom that is earthly and even demonic, and the, earth, the, the wisdom that is from above, and it's pure and peaceable and all that. And, and then in verse 18... Chapter 3 ends by saying, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now you know, you know that the Bible was not written with chapters and verses. So I don't want you to think about chapter 3.18 ending a thought. I want you to go right into chapter 4 verse 1. He's just said in verse 18 that peacemakers who sow, picture the farmer sowing the seed... Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And then he goes in to chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? You see, all of a sudden he's going into talking about from sowing peace to sowing wild oats. He's talking about there's no peace here. There's quarreling and fighting going on. A very big change of events has occurred between verse 18 and verse 1. Because James is going to teach about the problem 
with if you don't not addressing the passions and desires of your heart. Now there are, there are no need for me to point out examples in today's world of unbridled passions. I, I think you all know enough about that stuff in, in uh, your, either your lived experience or your observed experience. You know how it can enslave, how it can lead to evil, how it can cause quarrels and fights. And in verse 2, James uses another word to describe the origin of fights and quarrels. He says, you desire, and you do not have, so you murder. And then he goes on, he says, you covet, and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The, the word desire is the word lust. And then the word covet is a very interesting word, to be jealous or envious. In fact, this is an onomatopoeic word. I, know, I had to pr practice saying that. You know, an onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like its meaning, like your sizzling bacon. Doesn't that sound like frying bacon or your cuckoo, you know, the, the bird? Okay. Well, this word in Greek, which I'm not sure how they pronounced it, but this word in Greek signifies what it literally means. What does the word mean? It means boiling water. I don't know what boiling water sounds with the word zelao, which is zeal. But this is what the word means in Greek, boiling water. The idea behind this word is that you covet, you want something so bad that, that it causes you to obsess over it and it boils over into the way that you live your life and you treat other people. It's a, it's a bad place to be, this word covet, desire. And so... Verse 3, James even alludes to the fact that some of the believers that he's writing to were so occupied with their own passions and desires that they made it part of their prayer life. They were actually asking God for the things that they were evilly, sinfully desiring. And that's why James says you ask, you don't receive. You, you don't receive because you're asking so that you might spend it on your hedonin, your own sinful passions. What kind of a loving God would grant you that prayer when it's not even good for you and outside of his will, he says. And so fights and quarrels come from evil passions, desires, coveting. And then James sums it all up in verse 4 by saying, And if you follow this path, this path will lead you to be friends with the world and enemies of God. That's what it will lead to. Friendship with the world enemies of God. Verse 4, adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity against God? The life of the hedonist is a life that will fit in very well in this world, but if you fit in that well, you will be at odds with God. And so James is, is articulating what matters to God. We're making a list of the words all through the, uh, on this puzzle, we're making a list of the words of what matters to God. And now we're going to turn the page and look at a very important part in the second point, the life of the Holy Spirit. This is a pivotal verse, verse 5, and it's a hard verse to interpret and understand. In fact, the job of Bible translators is not to interpret Scripture, but every translation of the Bible that you have, when it comes to James 4, verse 5, all of the translators had to enter into interpretation. Why? Because the word pneuma in, in Greek, spirit, 
it is undetermined, it's unclear whether James is talking about the human spirit or the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice in your Bible that if it's a capital S, it's referring to the Holy Spirit of God. And if it's a small s, it's a translation that refers to the human spirit. Let me give you an example. There's four translations that I have up here on the PowerPoint. I particularly don't like the English Standard Version on this one, though I'm preaching from it every week. It says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. I find that very awkward. But clearly, the translators interpreted this to mean the human spirit, small s. God yearns jealously over your human spirit that, that he made to dwell in you. He doesn't want you pursuing those wild passions. Uh, the NIV says that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. Well, that's another angle. That's saying in the NIV... That, that this is the way God made humans, that he made everybody to, to be passionate about something. The spirit, the human spirit, is something that's going to yearn after something. Like someone said earlier in the service, you're going to worship something. Or like Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's, that's what kind of the NIV leaning is. And then there's the... Uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible, which says that the Spirit who lives in us yearns jealously. The Holy Spirit is yearning, longing for you, believers who are following these worldly passions. And then the fourth one I'll share is the, this is my favorite, the Living Bible, to me, really unpacks what I think James is getting at. He says, the Holy Spirit whom God has placed within us watches over us with tender jealousy. So now, I've obviously tipped my cards. I've had to take a position. I'm preaching from this text. I had to decide where I was going with it. In fact, before this week, if you'd have asked me, I think I'd have leaned toward this being the human spirit. But this week, I've really felt that, that the flow of this conversation that James is having leads me to believe that he's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. Now, after looking at the life of the hedonist in, in verses 1 to 4, the pathway of a person that is slavishly driven to pursue those kinds of passions and desires. He's about to turn in verse 6 to the humble servant of God and, and what it means to be filled with God. And the pivotal verse is that the Holy Spirit of God is the one who's been placed within you and he is watching out for you and he is longing for you and he's yearning that you would turn your life back to God when you get those battles within you. And so between these two, I, I see this. It, it fits with verse 6 as well when he says, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Hallelujah. God gives more grace. When you find yourself with warring passions that are causing quarrels and fights outside of you, when you find yourself being dragged down that road, God says, His spirit is longing for you, yearning for you, dragging you back to sanity. And he gives more grace. And then he goes on to talk about what is the life of the humble. We're going to move into that right away. What is the life of the humble? And we're not going to have time to unpack all of this this morning. We're going to continue next week with it. But what is the essence of what James is saying? I want you to look at verse 6 and verse 10 as bookends. If you have your Bible open, verse 6 and verse 10, James talks about the humble. He talks about humility. 
<clears throat> and he says, therefore, God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. And in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord then, and he will exalt you. Now, this idea is clearly out of Scripture. There's various Scriptures. Proverbs 3.34, Psalm 138.6, Peter, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. <clears throat> I could give you various examples where this idea of God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble is found in Scripture. But what does the humble path look like in regards to the theme that James is talking about? The theme that James is talking about is how do you deal with those passions and desires that are causing quarrels and fights? How is the humble path different than the hedonistic path because of the life of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life? Well, let's look at it. Verse 7. Verse 7 says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The word submit in Greek is a compound word, ipotasso. And ipo means under, and tasso means to arrange. So the submitted life to God is the life that is arranged under God. <clears throat> you arrange your life under God, or God arranges you under him, whichever way you want to see it. That's what it means to submit to God. It, it's saying, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow your way. I'm going to arrange my life under your values. I'm going to pursue what you pursue, what matters to you. I'm, it's going to matter to me. That's to submit to God. And, uh, and then you do that, and you resist the devil. And guess what? When, when the devil keeps on coming back to you, and he keeps on seeing a life that's arranged under God, and you not taking the bait that he's putting ahead of you, he's going to leave you alone. That's what he says. He says, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. He's going to stop harassing you. He's going to find some other, uh, other victim because you're not going to take the bait. You're arranging your life under God. And then he says in verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I love that. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. I want you to get the picture in your mind right now of a father-son on a hunting trip. This is the first time that this father has taken his son, little boy, on a hunting trip. And they're walking through the bush. Just imagine this. You're walking through the bush, and, and the father is on the one side, and the son is just a few steps ahead of him. And all of a sudden, as they're walking along, they spook up a partridge out of the, out of the bush. It just spooks him up, and the little boy is scared, and he runs back to his dad. He draws near to his dad. What does his dad do? What does Papa do? Papa draws him in even closer. Well, why did Papa do that? Is there any real threat? No. Partridges aren't known for being predatory creatures. Why did he do that? Why did Papa draw near to to the boy when the boy drew near to his father. I'll tell you why. Because the boy was afraid, that's all. The father knew better. There's no danger here. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't browbeat him. He said, smarten up. No, he draws near. He pulls him in. And if, if we human fathers would do this, how much more our heavenly father, when he sees that we are afraid, that's all it would take. 
for, for him to draw near to you. God sees your fears. He sees all that you see. Again, perceived threats. He sees what you see as if he's in your eyes. He, he's seeing what you think is threatening. He knows better, but he's seeing whatever you're afraid of. And that's enough. He cares for you. He draws you closer. You draw near to him, he's drawing you even closer. He's pulling you in tight. That's what the Father God is like. It could be the sinful inclinations of your own heart that you're afraid of. It could be the temptations of the world around you that you're afraid of. It could be the devil that prowls around your house like a roaring lion looking to devour you that you're afraid of. It could be the COVID-19 that you're afraid of. It could be the political and economic instability that we're afraid of. It doesn't matter what you're afraid of. God says, you draw near to me, I'm going to pull you in. That's why we can sing with our lungs full out just, God is good. He's good. And James next goes on to say, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. He calls us double-minded. That's actually the word double-souled, daitsukos, double-souled. And he says, James is saying, confess your sin. Don't let duplicity live in your heart. Don't be a double-minded person. Verse 9, he says, be wretched, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. What's he saying? He's saying there's a time for mourning, there's a time to bring your confession to God, to cease frivolous laughter of pleasure-seeking, and to get serious about the things that are waging war against your soul. That's what he's saying. There's a time for weeping and crying and mourning, and there's a time for laughter. And if you're doing a soul inventory because you're duplicit, you've got a double-souled attitude, then that's the time to get serious. That's the time to do heart surgery and, and weep and mourn and, and turn your joy to mourning because God says that's the time to, to lay it at his altar and say, God, change my heart. And he says in verse 10, as if, as if he has to wrap it up because he's, he's on this kick, he says in verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord. He's going to exalt you in due time. He's going to get you out of that mourning, weeping, grieving, sadness. He's going to get you out of that. Humble yourself. And God's going to exalt you. Isn't that wonderful? And so I believe that it's a, it's a more general prescription than the kind of prescription that we're going to read about in Paul's letter to the Romans in about six months when we get to chapters 6, 7, and 8, Paul's going to tell us really clearly how to deal with the warring passions in our hearts. But I think James is giving us a, a roadmap here that's worth following. Now let me share uh, quickly about Christian hedonism. Just a word. Christian hedonism. This is a phrase that was coined by John Piper over 40 years ago in his book uh, that he wrote called Desiring God. He took a lot of heat for this because uh, there are many people that don't feel that hedonism and Christian should be in the same page together. And he disagrees with that. And um, in uh, the book that he writes and in the organization that he has led, Desiring God, uh, they believe so, so firmly that 
that joy in God is not an option and that pleasure in God is not an option. Let me read to you the definition of Christian hedonism. It is the conviction that God's ultimate goal in the world, his glory, and our deepest desire to be happy are one and the same because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God himself is glorified by our being satisfied in him. Therefore, our pursuit of joy in him is essential. You know, I think that uh, it's a brilliant way of understanding what I think the scriptures teach. Other authors write in different ways. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so, so there's this picture of the Christian life that is wrong if you think that somehow God is against pleasure. God is for pain. God is not wanting you to be happy. God is wanting you to follow through with a stoic attitude toward the Christian life of duty. That's not the Christian life that Jesus talked about, nor that Paul talked about, nor that the Bible teaches about. Psalm 1611, you made known to me the path of life. You'll fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. I believe that God does call us to pursue joy, and I believe that he calls us to pursue it in Jesus Christ. And I believe that um, we have just settled for something lesser, and he calls us to something greater. And I hope that's what you hear in the message this morning. We're going to turn our attention to the table of the Lord in a minute. And um, I want us to think about for a moment, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about let us uh, run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of heaven. And I want us to think about that because in that passage, James is, or sorry, the writer of Hebrews is pointing us to the cross. And I want us to point to the cross because I believe that Jesus saved us from something for something. I think our, our tendency as Christians is to think about what we're saved from. We're saved from hell. We're saved from uh, damnation and wrath of God, whatever you want to describe it. But, but that's only half the equation. We were saved for. We were saved from having to be enslaved by lesser passions and desires. But we were saved for the incredible, incredible passion of knowing and loving God. That's why Jesus, when he sums up all the commandments, says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And if he had more things to say, he would have said something else, but he just, he ran out of words. Love the Lord your God with all your being. Is that not passion? 
Is that not seeking pleasure, loving God that way? I think it is. And as we come to the cross, we, we come to the table which points us to the cross of Jesus, and it's a reminder that this is what God has called us to be as well. If you're at home and you're with us online, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper in just a moment. And if you're here, um, you've received a little cup uh, when you came in. And we're just going to have uh, a moment with a song to prepare for uh, this time at the table of the Lord. And so, Kevin, would you lead us? And then uh, the little cup that is here, I'll explain how to open it in a minute. Sing this together. When I survey the
you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we see on the table the bread and the cup, tokens of your broken body and shed blood. We acknowledge that we are in need not only of your forgiveness that you purchased at the cross, but also the life that you offer through the resurrection. We acknowledge our need also for your intercession in the face of the weakness we have against sin. Risen Lord, we thank you that you are our high priest, that you sympathize with our weaknesses, that you have been tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. And so we bring our confession to you this day, Lord Jesus. Forgive us for allowing duplicity into our hearts, for allowing sinful desires a chance to even grow. Forgive us, Lord, that sometimes we have allowed those selfish desires to result in fights and quarrels. Forgive us that we have coveted and complained and spoken evil against our neighbor. And today, Lord Jesus, we choose the path of humility. We humble ourselves before you. We ask you to give us ears to hear your voice, eyes to see as you see, hearts to feel as you feel. Fill us fresh today with your Holy Spirit, the life of your Spirit. And thank you once again for this spiritual food that we have in Christ. We thank you for the bread and for the cup. In the name of Jesus, amen. I would ask you now to take the bread. There's a thin cellophane wrapping on the top of this little device and take the wafer and please partake of it now. Representing the body of Jesus broken for us. And then turn and, and take the whole tab and tear it back carefully. Partake of this juice remembering that Jesus Christ, his blood was shed so that you might be forgiven. Drink in remembrance of him. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As is our custom now at the end of of every service during this, this series in the book of James. Uh, we are having somebody come up and put another puzzle piece on our puzzle to, to remind us of the takeaway uh, that we have from scripture today. And so Wes Cron is going to come up and then he's going to pray on our behalf. Father, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for the people within it that pray for one another and pray for this world. I thank you for Terry sharing your words with us. God, as we, we try to love mercy, the mercy that you have shown us so that we can show it to others, Help us to walk humbly with you. 
in the beginning of our relationship with you, we looked more like a, a square that didn't really fit anywhere. But as we submit to your word, and as we walk with you, you begin to add to our square. And sometimes you take away. And as you sanctify us, and you cut more away, and you add more pieces, we begin to look more like a puzzle. A puzzle piece that fits somewhere. And we thank you for providing the puzzle. We thank you for leading our placement in there. God, help us as a church to wake up each morning and say, God, we are willing to be changed by you. We thank you for the continued mercy. We thank you for the continued direction. Help us. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord God, thank you for meeting us here today. Where the whole realm, where the whole realm of nature ours, that would still be a present far too small. Lord, I think we feel like children still learning what it means to love you more and to have joy in you more, still learning more and more what it means, what it is to trust in you and that you are enough for us. Lord, there's people on this planet that we've talked about earlier today who know more about what that means because of the trials that they've been through for their faith in you, knowing that you are the treasure in the jars of clay that we are. And we break and we crumble and we struggle, but you are the treasure. And Lord, I thank you that we have you, and I pray that you would show us more and more and more how amazingly sufficient you are that you give us the love so amazing, so divine, that that dem demands our soul and our heart and our all. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us here, and I pray that you bless each one as we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.